0: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. It's a holiday edition of the Peter King Podcast, and I really appreciate you taking some time away from family or whatever it is you're doing to celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah this week. And um, I've got an interesting little podcast for you this week. It's unusual. Um, Later in the podcast, we'll be joined by Amy Trask. In a conversation I recorded with the former Raiders executive and current CBS NFL analyst a couple of weeks ago in Los Angeles, when I was out there, and uh, but but first I'm uh, I should tell you I'm recording this at the Detroit International Airport. I'm changing planes. Started in New York early this morning. It's Monday morning, December 23 close to noon by now, but I change planes here on the way to San Francisco, where I'll join um, our extended family for a a Christmas celebration that we're really, really looking forward to. Uh, But first, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Joe Burrow. Now, I don't know Joe Burrow. He's the quarterback at LSU who won the Heisman Trophy, and um, you'll probably have to pardon me for some... uh, ambient airport airport noise over the next uh, 10 minutes or so but um i i wanted to just share a story from my football morning in america column this week on nbcsports.com usually on monday i do a mini podcast in which i read parts of my column but this week i wanted to take time uh as we celebrate the holiday and are with family and talk about some of the things that are really, really important to all of us. And I wrote something in my column this week about Joe Burrow, who many of you know spent 31 seconds in his Heisman Trophy acceptance speech and basically talked about how he grew up in Athens, Ohio, and grew up with uh, some people who had major food insecurity in their family that's a nice way for saying that some nights they went to bed hungry and he talked about it and the response has been overwhelming you're going to hear about that in my little story here so let me start off right now with what I call the Joe Burrow lesson and I write My Christmas story is about ex-Athens Ohio High School and current LSU quarterback Joe Burrow and the ripple effect of a 31-second good deed. Saturday, December 14, Burrow accepted the Heisman Trophy in New York City. Early in his speech, speaking off the cuff, Burrow spoke for exactly 31 seconds about things you don't hear ever in a nationally televised Heisman Trophy speech. Poverty and hunger. Coming from southeast Ohio, Burroughs said, it's a very impoverished area. The poverty rate is almost two times the national average. There's so many people there that don't have a lot. I'm up here for all those kids in Athens, in Athens County that go home. Not a lot of food on the table, hungry after school. You guys can be up here too. End quote. In the audience, his parents sat impressively stunned. I think we were in awe, his father, Jimmy, told me. We never saw that coming. Sunday, December 15. When Jimmy Burrow woke up in the Marriott Marquis Hotel in Manhattan, his voicemail was full, which never happens, and his phone was bursting with more than 500 text messages. How can that ever happen, Jimmy Burrow thought. People were talking about the speech, he told me. And then it's, hey, congratulations on the Heisman. We didn't pound the table when Joe was growing up. It was just, be thankful for what you have. Respect everyone. Burrow coached for 15 years on Frank Solich's football staff at Ohio University in Athens, a college town in the middle of most of the most impoverished county in Ohio. It's also where I went to school and met my wife. Jimmy Burrow told me, Joe didn't pick his friends because of their economic status. He had a lot of friends from all parts of the area. Back in Ohio, an Athens High and Ohio grad, Will Draybold, felt energized by the speech. He logged onto Facebook, created a fundraising page for the all-volunteer Athens County Food Pantry at 11.02 a.m. He set a goal of $1,000 and left town that afternoon for Los Angeles on a business trip. Donations blew past that, and before Draybold went to bed in California that night, he raised the goal to $50,000. Monday, December 16, NPR aired a story on the speech and the fundraising, and CNN reached out. By 9 a.m. Eastern, when Draybold got up, in less than 24 hours into this, the fundraising total was more than $80,000. The Athens County Food Pantry's annual budget is about $80,000. It serves about 430 families and 1,200 people every year. Nothing like this had ever happened for an organization that pinched its pennies every month. And it was just beginning. Tuesday, there's a wall on the Ohio campus that gets painted by community and university groups. By Tuesday morning, it was painted with a Joe Burrow football figure and the words, Congrats Joe Burrow. Thank you for feeding your roots. By 10 a.m. the fundraising total was $350,000. Wednesday, Dreybold's Facebook fundraiser passed $400,000 overnight. And by the end of the day he'd raised the goal to $500,000. On the phone that afternoon I told Kirk Cousins about it. Wow, he said, wow, that is powerful. It goes to show you the platform of football playing the quarterback position. It just reinforces what a challenge to all of us playing this position that we have. You can really make a difference in a high school, in a college campus, in a community, in a state like Ohio or nationally like Joe did. Great job by Joe. In a classroom 10 miles east of Athens at the Federal Hocking Middle School, Sarah Crabtree prepared to show the Heisman speech to her 12 seventh graders. I'd say half of my kids in that class are experiencing some sort of financial hardship in their families, Crabtree told me. It's so important for these kids to know there are people who make it from here. When they finished watching the speech, the kids said, according to their teacher they had a lot of bug eyes like wow he's talking about us they sat down to write letters to burrow one of the boys in the class turned this in dear joe burrow thank you for showing me and other children that no matter where you're from or your life story if you work hard you can achieve greatness also thank you for giving back to your community You have inspired me to not be embarrassed by my life story and to work hard to achieve my goals. Again, thank you very much. The student signed his name, and under it he wrote, Just a kid from southeast Ohio. I asked Crabtree her reaction when she read the letters. I cried a little, she said. My kids can see themselves in Joe Burrow. Thursday. Jimmy Burrow on responding to the calls and texts. I'm down to 396 now, but I do 20, then I get 10 or 15 more. We thought it was going to calm down, but then another round of media hit. It just shows what the power of words from the right person can do. The Athens City School District Board of Education voted unanimously that evening to name the high school football venue Joe Burrow Stadium. The community was surprised at how quickly the decision was made, just five days after Burrow won the Heisman. School board member Kim Goldsberry told me, Honestly, I felt that it wasn't necessarily because of football. It was about Joe the person. While he has excelled in football, the ability to bring awareness to our community and the hunger need and social issues, it shows he's the whole package. We wanted to recognize that. This goes beyond football. In LSU's home, Baton Rouge, something unexpected happened. The Greater Baton Rouge Food Bank was linked by the Athens movement. And to the shock of the Louisianans, more than $50,000 poured in. By the weekend, donations would top $64,000. Friday. In Ohio, Jimmy Burrow did a talk show in rural Nelsonville for an hour. One hour of people saying thanks, he said. In Baton Rouge, Joe Burrow in cap and gown was awarded his master's degree in liberal arts. TMZ interviewed him. I didn't expect this at all, he said of the money he helped raise. I'm starting to realize the impact I can have on the area. Saturday, donations were slowing now. 474,749. Dollars was the total of Dreybold's drive by early evening. Giving this Athens County Class of 2012 alum time to figure out just what it all meant. This is what happens when social media works right, he said. We've been fighting the war on poverty since when? The 60s? But the needle hasn't moved in Appalachia. We may have well have been waiting for inspiration like Joe's. When Joe says, you guys can be up here, he's talking to a generation of kids in Appalachia. That could change lives. It's way too early for this. But could Joe do for Appalachian Ohio what LeBron has done for Akron? Sunday, at 11.02 a.m., exactly one week after the Draybold Fund page, funding page for the Athens County Food Pantry was posted on Facebook, This was on the front page, $477,340 raised of $500,000. Karen Bright, the president of the Food Pantry's board, told me, Who would have thought that in the middle of a speech for a football trophy that a young man would have kicked off this incredible fundraising and this incredible dialogue across the country? We've had people call from Vermont, New Hampshire, California, Texas, everywhere, just saying thank you, and how can we help? I truly hope this opens a conversation around the country, and we finally address the issues of hunger and food insecurity in this country. We're better than this. People in this great country should not be going to bed hungry. For Joe Burrow to put such a personal face on it, his classmates at Athens, he knew He knew they were going hungry, and he remembered that at this momentous time in his life. Karen Bright sounded emotional over the phone from Ohio. The board hasn't decided how to spend the money. It's still unreal. There are 15 more fundraisers going on, some local ones, and Karen Bright has no idea what they'll bring in. She has no idea how many people who say they're sending checks will actually do so. She said this money is a sacred trust. And she wants to be sure they spend it with utmost respect for those who gave it. Karen Bright said, it's a Christmas miracle. Thank God for Joe Burrow. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is my ode to Joe Burrow and what 31 seconds of thoughtfulness can do. And I hope it means something to you in this holiday season. Now, let's move on to our conversation this week. It's with Amy Trask, the former Raiders executive, who now is a CBS Sports NFL analyst. So happy to be joined on the podcast today by Amy Trask, who's a football analyst for CBS Sports Network. You see her from 8 to 12 Eastern in the New York City studios of the CBS Sports Network doing... That other pre-game show with Adam Shine, London Fletcher, Brandon Tierney, but we know that Amy Trask is the straw that serves the is that stir <laughs> straw that stirs the drink. And Amy, obviously, a long time as the uh, as a football executive with the Raiders, and uh, now you have a new life in the media. And and I should say, this is the most pleasant environment for a Peter King podcast interview in history, because as we sit here uh, outside in the middle of December in at the Lowe's Santa Monica Hotel, I'm staring at the Pacific Ocean. And it's not a day to go in the Pacific Ocean, but it's darn nice. So you have quite A nice little home field advantage here in LA.
1: I do and normally I'm doing the weather taunting so it's nice to (laughs) nice to hear you doing the weather taunting but you didn't mention that not only are we sitting out at the beach in mid-December we're just wearing lightweight hoodies.
0: Yes we are yeah.
1: Peter it is my pleasure to join you thank you for having me. Uh, I've been a fan of your work for what seems like eons but we won't date ourselves and I'm thrilled to join you.
0: So Amy we'll get to a lot of current events but I've always thought that the most interesting thing, or one of the most interesting things about you is that you went to UC Berkeley, you're an L.A. kid who went to Berkeley, and you somehow someway found yourself as an intern for the Raiders, and I've got to know how you got the job, and what is it like to be an intern with the Raiders?
1: Well, it was a spectacular experience that led to uh, almost 30 years with the organization. I did go to Cal Berkeley. Uh, had the great, great, great fun of going down the freeway just a bit and attending Raider games while I was at Cal. Not a lot of them, uh, certainly not. Is that how
0: you sort of became a Raider fan? Because you weren't when you were a kid, right?
1: Right. The Raiders were not in Los Angeles right. when I grew up here, but I did become a Raider fan while I was at Cal for a billion reasons, I'm happy to tell you. But as to the... Intern question The year that I graduated from Cal and moved back home to Los Angeles for grad school was the year that the team ultimately relocated to Los Angeles. And the reason I say ultimately was it had tried a few years earlier but been sent back to Oakland by court order. So when I right. graduated Cal was the year that they came down as well. And while a grad student, I uh, saw in my first year that others were calling around or arranging what they called either internships or externships. So I picked up the phone and i called the raider organization and i said i'd like to to do an internship and the receptionist connected me with a gentleman who said what's that and i said well i will work for you and you won't pay me and he said (laughs) come on down and that was the start of my almost 30 years with the raiders
0: well were they in el segundo yeah yeah i remember i remember that little home away from home so Give me your first Al Davis experience.
1: Oh, it wasn't um, many weeks after I had joined the organization. There's a couple that happened in the first few weeks. Um, One of them, I can't share the language with you, or I won't share the language with you. Uh, Very, very shortly after I joined the organization, uh, he walked into a room where I was sitting with another employee. And he lit into that gentleman like I can only imagine a velociraptor ripping into prey. (laughs) And I listened to him yelling at this gentleman. And the more I listened... Was he
0: yelling or yelling loud?
1: It was very, very loud. I don't know whether you'd call it, you know, it wasn't piercing or shrill. It was hollering, I would say is a better word. It was hollering, but not in a shrill way. Booming voice. Um, And it was excoriating. And I realized as I was listening that Al was wrong. So here I am roughly two weeks into my job... And I chime in, I pipe up, I say, excuse me, you're wrong. And his head spun around to look at me like, well, remember Linda Blair in The Exorcist (laughs) when her head spins around? The only difference was there was no green stuff coming (laughs) out. And he looks at me like, who the hell are you to tell me I'm wrong? And I said... Look, you're wrong. If the facts on which you were basing your conclusion were correct, well, then that's a fair conclusion. But you are basing your analysis and your conclusion on incorrect facts and information.
0: How old were you?
1: Early, early part of my mid twenties. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Now, now we've dated me, right? Yeah. Uh, so, no, I was, yeah, I was in my mid twenties, the early part of my mid twenties. But you knew that um, this was
0: Al Davis, the legend.
1: Oh yeah. But look. And I'll come to that in a minute if you wish, but he yelled at me. I yelled back, Peter, I don't have a dainty voice under the best of circumstances. And he was getting louder and louder, and I was getting louder and louder. And after we went on for quite a bit of time, he finally looked at me and said, okay, okay, I I got it. And we went on to finish the conversation, and it never came up again. I learned later that a huge crowd of employees had gathered in the hallway outside the office. One woman even brought a box because she thought that's it. This woman's not even making it three weeks in the organization. <laughs> but what I learned then is Al didn't um, resist disagreement. There's many people who thinks he wouldn't harbor. Disagree- he liked
0: conflict, didn't he?
1: You know what I learned was I could disagree with him, but bring your data. Bring your information. Don't disagree just to be ornery and disagreeable. If you wanna disagree, bring your information and then recognize, okay, you know what? I'm gonna disagree with you. I think there were huge chunks of time during my career, maybe the whole thing, where I disagreed with him more often than I agreed with him. But I always understood he owned the business. It was his business. It was my responsibility to disagree when I felt disagreement was right. And if he made a decision I didn't like, it was my responsibility to effectuate it as best I could. And never, ever, ever did I say to anyone, well, I don't really like this decision. This was his decision. Because that's not what you do when you're part of a team. Hmm.
0: I always thought about Al that part of him was, he was a little bit like Paul Zimmerman was when he worked for Sports Illustrated. There was a bite to him. And if you could get past that, and if you could take that, and if you could communicate with him on equal footing, you were going to be fine. Al does not, I always thought Al did not suffer weak people very well.
1: I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, You know, there were times where he was biting. There were times where he was, not times, he was always very, very, very tough on me. Um but in what I would consider a good way, a fair way. And there were times he was compassionate and caring and just a very, very unique man.
0: What would he call you, Amy or Trask?
1: Um, oh, a whole bunch of things. Um, aim. He'd oh, call really? me Aim a lot. Yeah. Um, and variations of Aim or Amy.
0: Yeah. Sometimes
1: Trask. Sometimes Trask.
0: You know, I, I have to tell you about the last extended conversation I had with him. It was 2004 before the draft. That was the Robert Gallery draft. Right. And, you know, the Eli Manning draft. And the day I sat in his office uh, in, in Oakland, in Alameda, was the day that Pat Tillman died. And oh, wow. That that was that was a really, really interesting day because I thought at that moment he wasn't positive what he wanted to do. That week, Eli Manning had come in to visit the Raiders, uh, and had been in his office, but uh, forget that for a moment. I thought that was re- what was really interesting is that at least a third of our conversation was about the UConn women's basketball team.
1: You know, you know. I, by the way, I do remember when Eli came in. I remember you being there. I did not remember the Pat Tillman. Um,
0: it happened that day. That was yeah. that
1: day. I didn't yeah. remember that. Um, he was passionate about women's basketball. And some people thought, well, okay, he, this is just sort of he's being cute or he he doesn't really like it as much he, as he does. No, he really, really loved women's basketball. And he used to love watching all of the teams. And I've shared with Swin Cash, who, of course, yeah. played at the highest levels, how much he liked watching. There were times, Peter, I would walk into his office, I would need something signed, I would need something done, and I would have to sit there and wait while he finished a woman's basketball game <laughs> and I'm just could you just sign this at a commercial break but we sat there and watched the game and then he, he gets-
0: I, what I remember about that day and I don't know how many people who listen to this will even know who this is he loved Diana Taurasi he thought that she was such a great athlete and such a tough you know he was talking about her like you know using like she's like Larry Bird well and you know who she else? will not lose
1: And you know who else he liked that was equally tough and also a baller of a basket player? Nancy Lieberman. Oh, wow. Loved her.
0: Wow, yeah. Um, You know, Amy, I I thought, you know, when I knew I was going to be talking to you, the one thing about the Raiders that it was almost that you guys, it was the league office and 31 teams against one at time. Well, not 31, but however many teams there were against the Raiders at times. Did you guys feel the us against the world thing inside your building?
1: On occasion, and I guess the best way to answer that is some people felt it more than other people felt it. Uh, Al felt it more than others, and of course, he owned the business, so of course he felt it. But I used to have a discussion with him um, fairly fairly frequently about Hanlon's Razor. Don't assume mendacity when something can be explained by, you know, something can be by stupidity. In other words, something is not always intended to be malicious. Sometimes it can just be dumb. And there were things that would happen at the league level and Al would want to go DEFCON 5. And I would say to him, wait, wait, wait this wasn't something that they did that was intended to be malicious. This was just something dumb, and I don't think we should take it personally. Well, let me just say those conversations didn't always go really well for me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I always thought there was something about that that gave him energy, too. Absolutely. And that really made him, because he was such a competitive human being, that's the thing, from going back to you know signing and hiding players in the afl nfl battles hey look i will always believe that al davis not joe Namath. not i thought that al davis was the single biggest factor leading up to the merger you know
1: and i loved you know all the things that you just identified i love that we were different we did do things differently sometimes we did things that we knew would Kind of pissed the league office off, and we giggled about it before we did it. Um, And yes, he did actually giggle—that's a fact. Uh, (laughs) But one thing that—and the reason I answered your question as I did—is there were wars or disputes between the league office and the Raiders. Of course, there were. Make no mention. Make no you know bones about that. But Al loved the league, and that's what I think a lot of people: Lamar Hunt, Ralph Wilson, Wellington Mara. Dan Rooney, these were all men who said to me, this is not you know, conjecture on my part, they said to me that while they dis- disagreed with Al on many of his business decisions relating to team relocation and some others as well, that they knew he loved the league as much as they did. And he did.
0: We're recording this before the Raiders' last home game at the Coliseum. It'll be this weekend against the Jacksonville Jaguars but we'll be playing it afterwards. But I am curious now, as you sort of look at the landscape of the NFL, what will the league be missing without a football team in Oakland?
1: Something that is different than that which is offered elsewhere. And look, Peter, I understand that every fan base thinks it is the best fan base, and every team thinks it has the best fan base, and that's how it should be. I think every fan base should think it's the best. What I will add about the Raiders is that it's different. The fan base is different, just like the team was different. The fan base is a little bit irreverent, like the team was irreverent. The fan base... Well, I guess maybe different is the best word. Unconventional, maybe that's an even better word. The fan base is unconventional. The organization is unconventional. Al was unconventional. Listen, Peter, if Al wasn't unconventional, he doesn't hire a young woman in the mid 80s. In the mid 80s, we weren't talking about women in football. This wasn't a topic. He didn't care. He hired people without regard to race, gender, ethnicity, or any of those other differentiating characteristics which have no bearing whatsoever on whether one can do a job. Or maybe I should say different individualities which have no bearing on whether one can do a job. Al was unconventional, and I love that. And the fans are unconventional, and I love that. And the relationship is very special.
0: What was it like for you over the years to... You were one who really liked to walk around the parking lot in Oakland before a game and on the road, too. But I, I I, did that one time. I did it, I think, three years ago, and I had a fantastic time. And the reason that I think I had the, the time, the, the great time, is that it was really a lot different than I expected. It was not... It was a bunch of people, many of them in Halloween costumes, but... It was not contentious. It was warm and friendly. And, hey, thanks for coming to see us in our element rather than drawing conclusions from on high because we may have these bizarre costumes on.
1: Well, nobody can see this because we're not on camera, but I am smiling ear to ear and (laughs) nodding as you are speaking. You use the word welcoming, I believe. This is a warm and welcoming fan base. And if you show up in that parking lot and you're from elsewhere in the country and you don't have a tailgate, you will be invited to join those fans at innumerable tailgates. I get tweets now, now that I'm on Twitter, I get tweets saying, you know, I'm going to a Raider game. I'm from out of the area. What do I do? And I said, go in the parking lot, introduce yourself to people. You'll have more invitations to join tailgates than you can possibly imagine. And I used to refer to the fans as bedecked, bejeweled, be decked, be, jeweled, be spangled. And I used to love that executives from other teams and national media were a little scared. They (laughs) were scared in the parking lot, and I loved it. They were scared in the stadium, and I loved it. And I remember standing on the field pre-game talking to the president of another team, and he said to me, Amy, I always see you during games when we play you in Oakland, when you play us at our stadium, And you're walking through the stands, and you're sitting with fans, and you're hanging out with fans, and not just in the fancy seats. I see you in the end zone. I see you in the third deck. Why do you do that? And I looked at him, and I said, why don't you? There is no league without fans. I loved our fans. Still love them.
0: Yeah. Um, I think Las Vegas is going to be a good market for the NFL. I really do. But there will be something missing because there's not going to be there's not the big parking lot with the tailgating outside that stadium. There's limited space. A lot of people will be coming over, I think, in like hotel shuttle vans and things. Um, And there's not going to be a black hole in that stadium. So when you think about the Las Vegas Raiders, what do you think it's going to be like?
1: Well, I think you hit the proverbial nail on the head. It's going to be a paradigm shift for the fans. It's going to be a paradigm shift for the team. Right now, and you know this, of course, you go to a game in Oakland, and the overwhelming percentage, I don't know if it's 95 97 98% of the fans are Raiders fans. Well, if you're the fan of a team that is playing the Raiders on the road, And you can afford, either financially or for, you know, time commitment purposes, to make one trip per year to watch your team on the road. You're going to go to Vegas. I mean, we all saw Chevy Chase and Vegas Vacation. Well, if you can go to one road trip for your team, you might well pick Vegas. I think both the team, the organization as a whole, and the fans are going to have to get used to a much heavier visiting team fan contingent. I still think Raider fans will be the overwhelming number, but not to the extent it is in Oakland.
0: Will a lot of people follow the Raiders? Who? What percentage of the fans who go to games right now, the 55,000 or whatever, will go to the games in vegas you have any idea
1: I, I don't know a number but i will tell you that a lot of the fans attending the games in oakland are flying into oakland from yeah, other places That's a good so point. if you're flying into oakland from san diego or los angeles does it really matter to you and to some the answer will be yes and to others it will be no whether you take that plane north to oakland or east to las vegas Um, And there are fans, the, the bulk of the Raider fans in the Los Angeles area are in the part of Los Angeles we refer to as the Inland Empire. And that's a whole hour or so even closer to Las Vegas. So those fans, like Violator, who fly up to Oakland, could now, if they choose to do so, drive to Las Vegas. And there are, look, there are fans who are from the Oakland area that will follow the team to Vegas, and there are fans who are heartbroken and will not. And I think that applies to fans from around the country as well.
0: The, The one last thing I would ask is, as somebody who obviously worked in the AFC West for so long, to think of the AFC West without San Diego and Oakland in it, I don't know. I'm just really bothered by that. San Diego obviously has not been in it now for a couple of years, but I'm just really bothered by that. I'm bothered by the fact that the NFL, I don't want to say has sold its soul, but they've they've sold for these shiny new stadiums. They've kind of sold out some fan bases, and I'm bothered by it. And I think in a couple of years, we're going to look back and say, certainly I think with the Chargers, the Chargers should still be in San Diego. I still think that to this day. I think there should be, the Raiders should be in Oakland. I'd be happy to see a team in Vegas, but I just think the Raiders in Oakland, there is nothing like it in sports.
1: I agree with that. It is, and, and you know what? It's not mutually exclusive when I say that for the fans that are happy the team is moving to Vegas and who will embrace it, um, I'm happy for them. And for the fans who are heartbroken, and there are many, I'm heartbroken for them. That's not mutually exclusive. Yeah. But to your point, there is, and the only expression I can use to best sum it up is a je ne sais quoi about the relationship between Oakland and the team and the league. It is just a very different experience. And, you know, I had never done what you just did, which is to look at the AFC West as a whole and realize that now, wow, when you look at it, 50 percent of the teams will have relocated within a short period of time. Yeah. We're old enough to remember when Seattle was in the AFC that's West.
0: right. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, with Amy Tress. So, Amy, uh, let's move on to two other topics I wanted to touch on. One is about the future of women in the NFL. I know the league has been very conscious in recent years to try to give women chances to work in the league, both, you know, on coaching staffs uh, and working in front offices. Has there been real progress? Is it cosmetic progress? How do you look at it as somebody who really was the first significant uh, decision maker? in an NFL front office as a woman.
1: Well, there are some terrific women around the league um, in, in all the capacities you mentioned. Hannah Gordon is the uh, general counsel up in San Francisco. Jeannie Bonk is the CFO, COO, EVP. Um, some terrific titles for the Chargers, uh, we, which we were just discussing. So there are some terrific women doing Katie, terrific Katie
0: Blackbird in Cincinnati right. is going to have I, a big role. I yeah. think the
1: world of Katie and the only reason I differentiated Hannah and Jeannie is they're not related to ownership. Right. So that right. Was the, yeah. and, but yeah. Katie is magnificent. Uh, and there are other women as well and there has been progress but what is going to be really exciting is when we're no longer discussing progress people reach out to me all the time when a woman is hired and they say aren't you excited and my answer is sure but what's going to really excite me is when we no longer have to be excited and that has to do with race and gender and ethnicity look if there's such a thing as business darwinism businesses who don't do what Al did and hire without regard to race, gender, ethnicity or any other individuality which has no bearing on whether one can do a job should fail because by definition they're eliminating vast swaths of really capable people. So I do think the league is making progress and I'll be really excited when it's no longer viewed as progress. Hope that makes sense.
0: It's kind of like, talking about it in that way is kind of like as we sit here right now the top two candidates for MVP are Lamar Jackson and Russell Wilson. A generation ago, two black quarterbacks being the top candidates for the MVP, everybody would be talking about that. And, you know, who knows what happens in the last couple of weeks, but, uh, you know, Patrick Mahomes could elbow his way into it, Dak Prescott, I mean, who knows. But we don't really talk very much about the black quarterback anymore. It'll be very interesting you know, I noticed the, the New York Yankees have a, uh, have a female batting coach in the organization oh, wow. now. Yeah. And I, I just think when it becomes more than just, I don't even want to say novelty, but when those people both, you know, in all sports, start to get promoted because of who they are and the quality of job that they do, you're right that is going to be a real bit of progress and
1: you mentioned the batting coach and i'm smiling because my guess is not one player on that team cares about her gender and i found over the course of my career that there was no one player no player that had an issue with my gender Players want you to help the team be better. Players want you to be a good teammate. Look, in the big three, which I'm involved in, Ice Cube and Jeff Quantnitz's new three-on-three basketball league. We have two women head coaches that are on equal standing with all the men that are head coaches. And people often say, do you pay them the same? And I say, no. And they look at me. I said, we pay them more because in each of their first years, they won the championship. Wow. So they got a championship bonus. <laughs> we paid them more. And you know what? To the point I was making... Our players and our coaches vote on Coach of the Year. And in Nancy Lieberman's first year, voted Coach of the Year. In Lisa Leslie's first year, voted Coach of the Year. None of the players care that they're women. They noticed these women are tremendous and help them win.
0: Yeah. Um, my other thing that I sort of wanted to get into a little bit is women in the sports media and particularly women in, in football media. Um, but I'll detour first to ask you, when Sports Illustrated this past week named Megan Rapino as its Sports Person of the Year, she went to the ceremony, I believe it was Tuesday night, uh, or Monday night rather, honoring her. And she looked around the room and she said, in effect, and I'm paraphrasing, boy, it sure doesn't look like there are many women here in this media company. And why am I only the fourth woman to get this award? The reason that I really like that is that the nice thing would be to say, Man, this is such a great honor. I love this. I I can't tell you this is this goes up with winning the World Cup and, and and all that stuff that Megan Rapinoe might have said. But she doesn't like the status quo. She wants the status quo to change. A Just what do you think of Rapinoe? And what do you think of the status quo in sports media with women? <sighs>
1: I don't know the numbers, I don't know the data, I don't know the statistics, and I'm answering this in reverse order, Um, but I do know that there are some tremendous, tremendous journalists that are women, and there are tremendous journalists that are men, and there are some that don't do a good job, whether they're men or women. Evaluate them on their merits. I do know from women that have covered the NFL for years and years of some of the difficulties and the challenges that they have experienced, and one can hope that those will continue to dwindle over time. Uh, as to Megan, I don't know her personally. I'd love to meet her someday personally so I can only speak to what I've seen publicly. And, you know, you used a word, uh, I think you said unconventional, or I don't remember the exact Mm -hmm. word you used. I would say yes, and she has the courage of her convictions because there are many people who may have unconventional views but are fearful or hesitant to share them publicly. She has views that are different, And she is not scared to share them publicly. And I have a lot of respect for that because it's one thing to have views and say them in a whispered voice. It's another thing to say, these are my views. They're not conventional and I'm going to share them publicly. Let's have a discussion.
0: One of the things I loved about Jenny Vrentis wrote the story in Sports Illustrated and it was fantastic. It really was great. But there were two things that really stuck with me about the story. Her father, Megan Rapinoe's dad, she grew up in California is not a red state. Redding, California is a red town, a red city. She grew up in a household where dad voted for Trump. And her mom is still a waitress slash server at a restaurant in Redding where People were so upset with Megan Rapinoe kneeling to support Colin Kaepernick that they asked the owner of the restaurant to take the Megan Rapinoe photos off the wall. And did he? He did, and the mom was unhappy with that, but she said, you know, it's his business. He can do what he wants. Obviously, I would like the pictures to stay. And I think there was some part of it, too, where she kind of needs the job. But you talk about a conflicted person. You grow up in that environment where, you know, first of all, you're gay. Second of all, you are as liberal as they come and you're growing up in this area. And I read that story and I said, now I really understand a little bit about where Megan Rapinoe was coming from.
1: And isn't there a wonderful lesson in that for everyone, that we can all have different views yeah. on any topic. That's whatever her, the top
0: big thing. Yeah.
1: I, whatever the topic is, whatever our views are, sit down with people, have a conversation, exchange thoughts in a reasoned and reasonable manner, and if ultimately you disagree, well then disagree agreeably. You can have a conversation, but if we don't start listening to one another, learning from one another, and trying to find ways to resolve problems together, even if everyone has to compromise a little bit we're not going to solve anything not everything has to be binary not everything yeah. is either or there's a great lesson in everything you just shared
0: okay so we're going to end with this we're going to end with amy trask on twitter okay amy i have to say when you used to work for the raiders you at times were combative sticking up for your organization and you didn't care what anybody thought. You were going to tell the truth as you saw it. On Twitter, you're Henry Kissinger. You are the ultimate diplomat, and you get your point across, but you listen to the other people as well. So you tell me your philosophy about Twitter.
1: I don't think those are mutually exclusive, by the way. I think one can stand up for one one believes in, even if one has to do it in a strong and assertive manner but you don't have to be mean about it. And I hope I was never mean. And if I was ever mean to you, I'm sorry. You work. But I, I do believe that we can, be, we can have the courage of our convictions and we can be clear and we can be direct and we can say what we mean and mean what we, well, you should never say what you mean unless you mean what you say. Uh, or you should always say what you mean, but mean what you say. That's right. how I say it. But you can do it in a nice manner. Look, I call it my Twitter village. We disagree with one another a lot, but we disagree agreeably. And I would say on the years I've been on... Pe- you re- that's a
0: very good way to put it about what you we do. We
1: disagree agreeably, and we exchange thoughts in a civil manner, in a reasoned and reasonable manner. And when we disagree, which we do, we do so agreeably. And I would say, Peter, in the few years I've been on Twitter... Less than a dozen times has someone been nasty in a disagreement. And I immediately tweet back when I see it, you know what? Fair enough, you disagree with me. But you don't have to be mean about it. I mean, I realize I sound like a third grader saying, don't be mean to me. But I say, you don't have to be mean. And in all but one or two instances, the person has written back and said, you know what, you're right. I do disagree with you, but I didn't have to be mean about it, and I'm sorry. And then we go on to have a conversation. The only other two times, they just disappeared. They just sort of slid out of sight, (laughs) but they didn't continue to be mean. And my view is, Twitter is magnificent. When CBS, when I first joined CBS Sports and they asked if I'd go on Twitter, I said, no, never, not a chance, not happening, never. And I went on, and I've since decided it was obviously invented for me, right? Um, I love the fact that we can have conversations with people throughout the world on a real-time basis and maybe listen to each other and find a way to disagree agreeably.
0: I said that we were going to end with that, but I do want to ask you one other question that just occurred to me. Let's fast forward three years. Roger Goodell resigns as commissioner of the National Football League the search firm looking for his successor calls you and says we'd be interested in having a meeting to talk to you about being the commissioner or being a candidate to be the commissioner what would you say what would you think.
1: My first question would be, are you moving the league offices to Malibu? <laughs> that would be the first question out of the box. Um, look, I don't know what the world will be in three years. I don't know what I will or won't want to do in three years, but that is not something that has even sort of crossed my mind.
0: But but people on Twitter want you to be commissioner. They
1: do. And yeah. so maybe I can be commissioner of Twitter.
0: <laughs> no, maybe, uh, maybe you could be a candidate and shake things up a little bit.
1: I'm I'm always in favor of shaking things up. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. Amy Trask, it was so much fun to talk to you on your home turf. We're looking out at the Pacific Ocean. It's December this is not Brooklyn, New York, I tell me. That's where I live, and we're not doing this in Brooklyn today.
1: You know what, at one of my first league meetings early in my career, you know the annual meetings, are always in an ooh la hotel, yeah. and we were at the hotel, the Arizona Biltmore, where yeah. all, each team had its own little cabana, and I remember after the meeting um, ended one day, walking through the pool cabana area to get back to where I was meeting Al for a meeting we were going to have, and I heard the daughter of one of the NFL team own look around her and say this doesn't suck and you know what (laughs) those were wise words and neither does this peter
0: you're right amy trask thanks a lot best of luck in everything you do
1: and you as well thank you
0: my thanks to amy trask for meeting me in los angeles and recording that interesting conversation about the fate of the raiders and her old Al Davis stories, and I really appreciate that. And thanks, too, to Joe Burrow for his 31 seconds in time. 31 seconds that are going to change a lot of lives. And thanks for listening to the podcast this week. I hope you'll be back next week when I don't think we're going to have something as, <laughs> as kind of emotional as Joe Burrow next week. And I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, But I look forward to talking to you again next week. Have a great holiday week, everybody.